It's a chilly morning on April 23rd, 1778. A Scotsman, wearing a British uniform, fighting for the United States of America, hastily lights a crude incendiary device. Time is running out, and he's determined to torch something, at least as a statement. The man is a ship's captain, a mighty authority at sea, though at present, he barely has control of his own crew, who believe nothing can be gained by burning poor people's property. The man hurls the device, and an enemy merchant boat bursts into flame. The motley party of sailors scamper to the launch boat as hundreds of English townspeople rush from their homes and man the forts overlooking the harbor. The invaders row heartily back out to sea, but not a shot from the forts is fired in their direction. The guns have been personally spiked by the man in the captain's uniform. Tauntingly, he rises and fires his pistol at the flummoxed townfolk. This is the story of John Paul Jones, part one. John Paul Jones, America's first naval hero, was actually born in Scotland on July 6, 1747. His true name wasn't even John Paul Jones. It was just John Paul. The Jones surname would actually be added to his name much later, and under murky circumstances. John Paul was a gardener's son, and grew up on the sprawling estate known as Arbigland in southwestern Scotland. Arbigland overlooked the Solway Firth, coastal inlet that forms part of the border between Scotland and England. As a gardener's son, John Paul actually had a more privileged childhood than many in his time. His father wasn't so much a laborer as he was a horticultural manager, responsible for planning and overseeing the large landed estate. The estate was owned by William Crake. Although never proven, rumors persist that Paul was actually the illegitimate son of William Crake, who was being raised by Mr. Paul as a favor, or perhaps a condition of employment to his master. Whatever the circumstances of his birth, Paul had the fringe benefits of an upbringing on a landed estate. He avoided the crushing depths of poverty that were so common in his time. He had free run of the spacious grounds, and perhaps most importantly, the benefits of a formal education. Indeed, young Paul was an avid reader and could often be found in the midst of a pile of books late at night. He studied math, writing, and French, all skills that would come in handy later in life. Yet despite the advantages, Paul's unique upbringing would cause him to be hyper-aware of the class distinctions that even at a young age already determined how far he could go in life. As a gardener, his father could design and toil on the land, but could never hope to own any himself. His gainful employment was always subject to the whims of his master, 
and he had to show deference to his social betters at all times. The young Paul was naturally ambitious, was growing up during the Enlightenment, a time when it was just becoming fashionable to begin to question the nature of these things. As a child, Paul loved watching the ships sail past the estate and into the Solway Firth. Ships loaded with goods from all over the world were returning to port, laden with exotic goods like tea and spices from India and virgin timber from the American colonies. Paul must have been inspired by the very same ships, later heading in the opposite direction, out to sea, where adventure and opportunity might await. It didn't take Paul long to leave his upbringings on Arbingland and become a seafarer. Paul was apprenticed to a Mr. Younger in the town of Whitehaven, where he often conversed with sailors. When Younger's business failed, he was released from his apprenticeship and shipped out at the age of 13, which was quite normal for the times. His lowly upbringings prevented him from securing an appointment as a midshipman in the Royal Navy, so he had to be content with being an apprentice on a merchantman, the Friendship. The Friendship had a length overall of 80 feet, displaced 200 tons, and carried a crew of around 30. Being an apprentice involved performing hard work, enduring poor conditions, and learning all things about the nature of sailing a ship. In the age of sail, the physical demands of seamanship were harsh, and Paul would have learned how to do all of them, from physically weighing anchor, climbing the mast to trim and set sails, coiling and heaving on lines, without the gentlemanly benefit of merely issuing orders to others. By all accounts, Paul took to the life well. Paul possessed one important skill that would enable him to excel at his newly chosen profession. The education he'd received on the estate included mathematics, including geometry, an essential skill for navigating a vessel. As a teenage apprentice, Paul was mentored by a friendly superior, Captain Benson, who recognized potential in the boy. Within a few years, Paul began to seek employment as a mate instead of a common sailor. Paul's first officer position aboard a ship was an undesirable one. He became third mate on the slave ship King George. He sailed the notorious Middle Passage for over two years, and it's hard for us today to think that the man often hailed as the father of the American Navy was, at least for a while, a slaver. It's also ironic to think that Jones, who later in life would often claim to be fighting personally on the behalf of liberty, would actively be involved with carrying others into bondage. Jones eventually moved on from this grisly segment of the British Merchant Navy and back toward conventional trade. When Paul left the slave trade behind, he booked passage on the vessel John, bound for Scotland from Jamaica. En route, both the captain and the first mate died of yellow fever, leaving Paul as the only competent navigator. 
He guided the vessel home and was rewarded by its owners with the master position. Still in his early 20s, John Paul was now a captain and had already risen higher than he ever could have hoped for on land. Paul was a skilled sailor, but as an officer, he tended toward authoritarianism. He had high standards for himself and expected no less from any member of his crew. Paul also had, perhaps from growing up as a commoner on a landed estate, high expectations for deference and respect from those he considered his underlings, meaning his crew. In a day and age when sailor was often an occupation filled from the dregs of society, and when liquor was drunk freely as part of the day's rations, these expectations inevitably led to conflict. Conflicts between Paul and his crews, later Jones and his crews, would be a running theme throughout both his civilian and military seagoing careers. Captain Paul's first problem came when he had a sailor whipped for insubordination. The sailor was a member of a well-connected clan back in Scotland, the Maxwells, and after the flogging, he left Paul's employ only to die aboard the next ship he joined. When Paul later returned to Scotland, he was arrested and spent a short time in jail. The Maxwell family claimed that their son had died as a result of injuries received by Paul's flogging. Paul was exonerated, but the experience left him upset and it began a lifelong obsession with personal honor and any perceived slights against it. It also may have soured him against his native land and his former neighbors, and may no doubt have contributed to his decision to raid the coastline there some years later, all in the name of liberty. After the Maxwell affair, Paul's career recovered somewhat, and he was given command of another vessel, the Betsy, involved in trade between England and the British West Indies. Paul was relatively secure, a competent ship's captain, and was starting to amass money. For a man quickly becoming obsessed with social climbing, as well as defending his personal honor, things seemed to be going according to plan. But events aboard the Betsy, while anchored near the island of Tobago, would indirectly lead to John Paul becoming John Paul Jones, hero of a nation that as of yet didn't even exist. At anchor near Tobago, Paul had some misfortune while contending with a combination of illness and cargo spoilage, and his crew had had enough. They weren't being paid, and Captain Paul had no money to pay them with. In attempting to dissuade a mutiny, Paul chose the wrong tactic when he escalated the situation by drawing his sword. A large member of the crew, known to history only as the ringleader, advanced on Paul, and according to Paul's own account, Paul tripped and the man fell on his sword. While this sounds unrealistic, Paul was adamant that the death of the man was unintentional. Indeed, Paul was regretful of the incident, yet will never know to what extent he was truly responsible for the man's death. The unpleasant experience of his arrest in the Maxwell affair still fresh in his mind and unwilling to face a trial 
in what he considered an unfriendly environment in Tobago, Paul fled to the American colonies. The circumstances of whatever had occurred aboard ship were suspect, so he wasn't a fugitive or a murderer per se, but he was definitely heading north to lay low for a while. It was at this point that John Paul became John Paul Jones. He added the Jones surname to help distance himself from the events in Tobago and probably chose it because it was such a common Welsh name. The newly minted John Paul Jones landed in Virginia, which he had previously visited as an apprentice under Captain Benson. His brother had lived in Fredericksburg. He loved the countryside there and had one day hoped to retire there as well. But now he arrived under less than desirable circumstances. Jones's attraction to Virginia probably stemmed from the fact that there it was somewhat easier to climb the social ladder than back in the British Isles. Unfortunately, easier by no means meant easy. Virginia had been colonized by the English for over 150 years, and social hierarchies were firm and well-established. A small number of families controlled most of the good land and operated large landed estates similar to the one Jones had grown up on although here they were supported by the added cruel institution of slavery. Jones had little luck climbing the social ladder, but he did find friends there, including a Scottish doctor named John Reed. Jones's network of friends he was introduced to through the doctor would later come in handy as he fought for influence for his naval career. When fighting broke out in 1777, Signaling what is today known as the Revolutionary War, Jones jumped at the chance to serve his new home. Like most who fought, his reasons for fighting were a mix of personal incentive and Enlightenment idealism. Yet even though Jones was vain and materialistic and obsessed with personal honor, it's clear he was one who truly believed in the cause. Jones's wartime naval career would repeatedly be marked with frustration at less capable men who were content to act more upon personal incentive than their duty toward the fledgling nation. Jones arrived in Philadelphia at the outset of the war, ready to volunteer for naval service. Still regarded as something of a stranger and an upstart in the colonies, Jones had to rely on his extended network of connections to make an introduction to the Naval Committee of the Continental Congress. In late 1775, he received a commission as a first lieutenant aboard the vessel Alfred. Aboard the Alfred, Jones had the honor of raising a flag upon his captain's arrival. We don't know exactly what the flag looked like but it's probable that it either bore a pine tree or a rattlesnake upon it, as the stars and stripes would not be adopted for another two years. This occurrence is often cited as the first American flag raised over any vessel. The first American squadron set to sea under Commodore Hopkins in early 1776, with five ships, a hundred guns spread between them, including 30 on the Alfred. 
British Navy was the largest and best in the world. And for the ill-trained and ill-equipped Continental Navy, possessing small, converted merchant ships like the Alfred, it was unclear just how to go about mounting seaborne resistance to it. Their initial goal was rather vague, simply to clear the coasts of enemy vessels. Commodore Hopkins instead decided to sail for the Bahamas and capture supplies. Arriving in Nassau, the Green sailors and Marines blundered in a shore action, failing to capture the gunpowder stored there, but still absconding with a valuable cannon and shot for the Continental Army. This was Jones' first military action, and as a first lieutenant aboard one of the five ships, he could not take full credit for it, though his personal nature would certainly ensure that he did everything he could to try to exaggerate his role. Their first shore action behind them, the squadron sailed northward toward their first sea engagement. Despite Jones's wishes, this would prove to be nothing more than a tragicomic affair. Off the New England coast, the squadron encountered the HMS Glasgow, 24 guns. They attempted to battle her piecemeal, without any coordinated strategy. And despite their best efforts, the Glasgow escaped all five ships. The poorly executed attempt had cost the lives of 10 American sailors. This encounter would come to be known as the Battle of Block Island. Of the battle, Captain Nicholas Biddle, who commanded one of the ships, wrote, A more imprudent, ill-conducted affair never happened. Back on land, the various officers involved in the battle attempted to salvage their reputations by participating in the blame game. Nepotism reigned supreme in the young Continental Navy, and each officer, when on land, had to function as a lobbyist for themselves in order to ensure future commands. Jones, never the type of man to be satisfied as an underling, joined right in, playing up his own role in the squadron's adventures while admonishing the conduct of others. Following the aftermath of the battle with the Glasgow, Jones received what he had yearned for since the start of the war, command of his own vessel. The Marine Committee offered him command of the sloop Providence. Jones's new ship was not heavy, but she was fast, and with proper handling, Jones could engage more powerful British warships and managed to make a quick escape, hopefully unharmed. This was his plan for the summer of 1776, when he took the Providence southward to harass and attempt to capture British shipping. Aside from taking prizes, Jones's handling of the sloop worked just as planned. He was able to escape the British frigates HMS Solbay and HMS Milford, by using his vessel's handling characteristics to his advantage. This is just a small example of how Jones was able to think critically about the Continental Navy's tactics against its much more powerful adversary, while others could only think of capturing merchant ships or engaging in evenly matched broadside duels. Operating off of Nova Scotia, Jones was able to successfully attack the British fishing fleets there, 
and also to raid the fishing villages that supported them. Jones had taken more than a dozen prizes on his first cruise in command of the Providence. He was quickly establishing himself as one of the Continental Navy's ablest commanders. Because of his early success, Jones was given a humanitarian mission to free American prisoners of war laboring in the coal mines of Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. In addition to the Providence, Jones was given two additional ships to aid in this endeavor. Jones left port very late in the year, and the weather was already turning foul to be sailing the North Atlantic. The old theme of men wishing to pursue their own fortunes instead of selflessly giving service to the needs of the nation again hampered Jones on his quest. His men wanted to capture prizes, not free prisoners. Jones's squadron did indeed capture a valuable prize, the British ship Mellish, which was carrying supplies for General John Burgoyne's army in Canada, including 10,000 uniforms. In depriving Burgoyne of these supplies, Jones may have directly contributed to the American victory at the Battle of Saratoga, which in turn was responsible for bringing France into the war. The uniforms captured were diverted to Washington's men during the darkest hour of the war at a time when they greatly needed winter clothing. Jones continued to capture prizes, but still remained fixed on his mission until he learned from men taken prisoner that there were no Americans left in the mines because they had joined the British Navy to save themselves. Arriving home in late 1776, Jones began to embody what would later be a trope of nautical fiction, the captain who is lucky at sea, but unlucky on land. Jones first was nearly arrested for the boarding of a privateer he had conducted at the onset of his cruise. For the second time in his life, he drew a sword on a man, unwilling to be arrested for a second time. Surprisingly, the whole incident seems to have been laughed off, because the case was tenuous at best. Nothing ever came of that particular court case against Jones. Jones was shocked and saddened to then learn that despite his drive, courage, and accomplishments, he was being snubbed by his superiors. The Congress had approved construction of 13 new frigates, real, purpose-built warships, and the Marine Committee had reorganized the seniority list of the Continental Navy's captains. Jones, a foreigner, an upstart, and a commoner, new to the political game, was ranked number 18th. Jones fired off angry letters to the prominent decision-makers, usually using high language to declare himself a noble stoic before endlessly complaining about his situation. It wasn't the best way to win influence with the young government but Jones continued to struggle to balance his lofty ideals with the pragmatic realities of 18th century politics. Jones also had many thoughts and strong opinions about the nature of America's Navy and the importance for it. Around this time, he wrote in letters some of what would become his vision for American sea power. Among his maxims, were that every officer should be examined 
before receiving a commission, that the ranks in the Navy should correspond to those of the Army, and that America should emulate the British Navy, because it was the best in the world. All of these traditions were eventually adopted, and it could be argued, persist to this day. In May of 1777, the Congress finally decided to make good use of Jones's talents again. He was ordered to France, not yet an American ally, but where sympathetic forces would outfit him with a frigate and give him further orders. To get there, Jones was given command of a brand new sloop of war, the Ranger, 20 guns. Although the Ranger was purpose-built, she was top-heavy and substandard materials were used in her construction. Furthermore, the shortage of qualified sailors hampered Jones's initial crossing of the Atlantic. The most qualified sailors continued to flock to lucrative privateers, leaving little for the Continental Navy. The crew of the Ranger would be filled with local men, largely from New Hampshire, where she was built. The officers were friends and relatives of prominent officials. The nature and makeup of the crew would prove to be the largest thorn in Jones's side over the coming months aboard the Ranger. Jones's crossing of the Atlantic was uneventful, and upon arrival in France, he was immediately met with disappointment when he was told the plans for giving him command of a frigate had fallen through. The ship in question was under construction in the Netherlands, and the Dutch government had been pressured by the British not to sell the ship to the Americans. It was now the winter of 1777, and Jones had little to do except immerse himself in Parisian society. There were other Americans operating in the city, notably Benjamin Franklin, who Jones spent time with discussing naval strategy. He found the French capital exciting, with many interesting people to talk to and subjects to talk about. Though he was born in Scotland and fought for America, he would later claim Paris as his home. In early 1778, with no prospects for procuring an additional ship, Jones was given license to utilize the Ranger to attack the enemy as best he saw fit. Jones knew that one sloop was a poor instrument with which to take on the British Navy, but he had the foresight to know that he could have a disproportionate impact on the enemy if he took the war to their coasts. The British felt invulnerable at home, and even though they had fought numerous wars over the centuries, England had never been under real threat of invasion since the Spanish Armada in 1588. Jones's single small ship could be an advantage if he used it to quietly slip through the shipping channels, land shore parties, and therefore cause the British to divert more resources to defending their coasts and less on attacking America. When an enemy thinks a design against them is improbable, they can always be surprised and attacked with advantage, Jones said. His strategy sound and set Jones formulated some ambitious subplots. One in particular was extremely ambitious, to kidnap an aristocrat, the Earl of Selkirk to be precise, and to ransom him for much-needed funds 
for the benefit of the American cause, or to exchange him for captured American seamen being held by the British. He also wanted to capture or burn British shipping or fishing fleets and plunder much-needed supplies. Most of all, he wanted to inflict fear into the population, which could be a valuable asset in turning public sentiment against continuing to prosecute the war in America. Ambitious as Jones's plan was, he did have some significant advantages on his side. Jones planned to raid the town of Whitehaven, just across the Solway Firth from his birthplace. He therefore knew the area from personal experience, from his time as a merchant seaman, and didn't have to rely on local pilots for guidance or for safe passage when close to land. This would allow him to operate unnoticed for longer. He also knew the nature of the local populations and could choose his targets wisely. Jones's significant drawback was the temperament of his crew. As always, Jones struggled with maintaining order and discipline, as the nature of the men he had under his command could never live up to his lofty ideals. The best seamen tended to gravitate toward privateers, leaving the Continental Navy the proverbial scraps. The crew on board the Ranger, like their privateer brethren, were also motivated by prize money, not necessarily by risking life and limb on Jones's strategic plan to inflict psychological warfare on the British public. Furthermore, the New England crew was used to following local town democracy, not to blindly following orders from an authoritative figurehead. In short, they lacked military discipline. A rift developed between captain and crew with any major course of action that was announced by Jones being debated among the men and then negotiated by First Lieutenant Simpson, who acted as sort of an anti-captain to Jones. Immediately upon getting underway, Jones had to put down a mutiny on board the Ranger. He was alerted to the mutiny by one of the few officers loyal to him. Forewarned, Jones narrowly avoided being thrown overboard by drawing his pistol and putting it to the conspirator's head when the appointed time came. Fortunately for Jones, and for the American cause as well, Jones showed temperance, and perhaps personal growth, by choosing not to overreact to the mutinous event. Perhaps having dealt with a few too many situations like this in the past, or perhaps just knowing he was greatly outnumbered aboard ship, Jones decided to make an uneasy truce with his subordinates. It was now 1778, almost three years since the war had begun, and it had taken Jones this long to take the fight to the enemy's home waters. He may have just decided to make the best of the situation with what he had on hand. The ranger proceeded northward through the Irish Sea that divides Ireland from Great Britain. Jones's plans to operate incognito, at least for a while, were immediately dashed when the Ranger was discovered by a British revenue cutter, roughly equivalent to a modern-day Coast Guard patrol boat. Jones initially attempted to pass as a British merchant vessel, but when this ruse failed, he opened fire on the cutter. The ineptitude of Jones's crew was on full display 
as the cutter made a hasty escape from the much larger ranger with only light damage. Jones's mission was now on borrowed time. The escaped cutter would soon warn the Admiralty, who would no doubt dispatch the might of the Royal Navy to find and destroy the American invader. Jones sailed around the Isle of Man for a bit, searching for targets and trying to formulate a specific plan. After a few misadventures of no real consequence, he decided to proceed with the attack against Whitehaven. Jones's plan was to land a shore party under cover of darkness and spike the guns of two forts overlooking the harbor, then burn the fishing fleet at low tide before the town's slumbering inhabitants could arise to mount any sort of defense. Again, Jones had to grapple with his mutinous crew's misgivings. They didn't want to raid a town and burn its fishing fleet. They wanted to capture undefended merchant ships and divide the prize money. Jones's newfound tact was on full display as he somehow prodded and persuaded the men until they reluctantly agreed to a shore action. The attack got underway early in the morning, before sunrise, with 30 men. The landing did go as planned, and Jones personally led the attack to spike the guns of the first fort overlooking the harbor. The men who were dispatched to attack the second fort failed to do so because they claimed they heard a threatening noise. Jones ran a quarter of a mile away to the second fort and set fire to it. According to some reports, this fire also spread to the town. When it came time to burn the fishing fleet, however, Jones was again hampered by his own crew as they had already begun plundering the town and had found a tavern and had been quick to consume the contents therein. Another problem arose as an unruly deserter from his own crew began alerting the townspeople that their livelihoods were about to be torched. This deserter has come to be known in local legend as the Savior of Whitehaven. Jones's men were unruly and disinterested in the task at hand. He feverishly searched for a flame and lit an incendiary device as the townspeople gathered around him. Drawing his pistol, he held them at bay as he torched the largest vessel he could find, more symbolic than anything. Jones and the men he barely commanded scampered to the launch boats and began to row for the ranger. The townsfolk manned their forts only to find that the guns had been spiked and they were unable to fire at the launch boats. Jones drew his pistol and began firing into the air, celebrating his first victory on British home soil. The raid had been a success, sort of. Jones was unhappy that the limited damage he had inflicted had been tempered by the grumblings and ineptitude of his own men. He decided to press on with his grand kidnapping scheme. The men of the ranger landed at the estate of the Earl of Selkirk. In a ruse, perhaps right out of the playbook, of some of the most clever commanders of naval fiction, Jones announced to the estate's inhabitants that he was the leader of a press gang here to forcibly enlist the young men into British naval service for king and country. This threat cleared the estate of any would-be resistance, as the men made themselves scarce to avoid such a dismal fate. 
This ruse worked because Jones often wore a British naval uniform because he just liked the specific uniform prescribed by the Continental Congress. It seemed that Jones might pull off the unthinkable and actually succeed in his kidnapping and ransom scheme. However, his hopes were dashed when he was informed that the Earl was not presently at home and had in fact recently traveled to England. Jones was crushed, but his men had little interest in kidnapping an aristocrat anyway. They now turned their thoughts to the pillaging and perhaps burning of the estate. For Jones, always preoccupied with maintaining his honor, this was not a desirable outcome. Yet he had to balance the needs of maintaining control over a crew he could already barely command with the needs of his long-term image and self-esteem. He permitted the men to demand the dining silver from the great house, to which a reluctant Lady Selkirk eventually obliged. The idea of an American raiding party crossing the Atlantic only to demand dinnerware from an aristocrat's wife at sword and gunpoint is indeed a tragic comic one. There was even an engraving done of the pirate Jones stealing Lady Selkirk's silverware. It's not an accurate depiction, though, as Jones wanted no part in the matter. He waited out of sight while the rest of his men carried out the theft. Absconding with the silver never sat well with Jones. Years later, he would make a point to return it to the estate at his own expense. From his short time in British waters, two things had become clear. The British coasts and its sleepy inhabitants were indeed vulnerable to attack, much as Jones had suspected. But also, his crew and time were huge impediments to carrying any out. Jones knew that the word of his exploits were already being spread and that he had to act fast to have more to show for his raid than a few spiked guns and some stolen silverware. Jones decided he had time for one more exploit. He wanted to capture a British naval warship, specifically the HMS Drake, a small warship of similar size and strength to the Ranger. In between the raid on Whitehaven and the botched kidnapping, Jones had attempted to cut her out of the harbor at Carrick Fergus clandestinely, but the ploy had failed amid wind, tide, and his crew's incompetence. Jones had been able to slink away unnoticed. Now he returned, resigned to a much more conventional duel on the open seas. The ranger initially attempted to pose as a British vessel, but after taking the small party of a British launch boat captive, the ruse had to be abandoned, and Jones instead lured the Drake out to sea. The actual engagement took about an hour. Because of the lack of gunpowder, the ill-trained American gun crews had rarely, if ever, actually fired their cannon before, and it was uncertain how they would perform in battle. Jones initially maneuvered the Ranger across the bow of the Drake, firing a broadside that raked the length of her deck. The two ships then came athwart each other and fired away. The Ranger scored some lucky shots on the Drake, particularly by her sharpshooters, felled both the Drake's captain and first lieutenant. With the breakdown of command, the Drake surrendered. The first actual British warship 
to do so to an American vessel, and Jones finally had a real victory. The recorded costs of the battle vary, but it was around 8 dead, 20 wounded aboard the Drake, and 3 dead, 5 wounded on the Ranger. A few comical exploits, and a single square victory under his belt, and with the Royal Navy's alarm having been raised, Jones wisely decided to end his first raid into British territory. He beat northward, rounding the northern tip of Ireland, and then headed down the Irish west coast, bound for France. Jones, the Ranger, and the Drake, soon to be sold and used in the French service, arrived in Brest in May 1778. Jones's competent seamanship had already been on display earlier in the war, when he served on the Alfred and commanded the Providence. In his spring 1778 raid, he also proved that he had the capability to overcome the leadership flaws that had previously plagued both his merchant and naval careers, if only barely. He avoided a mutiny and managed to accomplish a victory, though a small one, with an undisciplined and disloyal crew. Most importantly, he proved that he was also a competent naval strategist, able to correctly predict that even a single ship, well captained, would send the British countryside into an uproar. The word was out about what England now called the Pirate Paul Jones. But Jones would eventually return to British waters, resulting in what would be his most famous battle and biggest victory of his career. Thanks for listening to Ship Sagas. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast player to hear part two of John Paul Jones' story, as well as many other interesting tales from the sea. A special shout out to anyone listening on watch tonight. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.